This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 7. We finished up chapter 6 last week. We're going to jump right into chapter 7 at verse 1. So no reviewing. We're going to get right to the new stuff. Chapter 7, verse 1, words of Christ where He says, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, that is to say dispense, with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thy own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Well, let's just stop right there, because we've got a few words we need to de- we need to define. So back to the beginning. Judge not, Jesus says, that ye be not judged. Now this is this is the verse that people love to quote and love to quote and love to quote, usually directed at a believer who dares to point out something that ought not to be going on in their life. They say, judge not. Jesus said, judge not. Judge not. Be not ju- judge not. They don't, a lot of times they don't even finish the verse. They just say, judge not. It's their favorite two words. And now that's translated into a very... Uh, into a very popular tattoo, bumper sticker, or whatever, window decal, usually in big spiky gothic Mexican letters, you know, only God can judge me. Well, no, actually, that's wrong. Because people judge one another all the time. Right or wrong, they still do it. But there's a whole teaching in here that needs to be taken within its context. And we're going to try to do that here between verses 1 and 5. So he says... Judge not, but then he says, why? That ye be not judged. Now, if you just chop the, the next four verses right out of the text, then that's, then yes, you can just go with that and run with it for the rest of your life. But he says, judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. So there's the reasoning right there. So this isn't a unilateral injunction. Uh, upon the believer or anybody else to never exercise a sense of judgment between right or wrong. It's not what Jesus is telling us to do. Never judge anybody. Jesus isn't telling us never to judge anybody. And we've got some other scripture that will tie to that so that you have a, a better under, so we have a better understanding of it and it will support what we're talking about. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So what's the lesson there? Be careful. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying judge right judgment. And actually, if you want to jump over to to, uh, the Gospel of John for just a moment, I don't normally do a lot of jumping back and forth in Bible studies, but jump over to the Gospel of John really quick to chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Okay, now that doesn't sound like never judge anything ever or never judge anybody ever. Okay, 
He's saying if you're going to judge someone, and what he means by judging someone is determining whether or not they're doing right or wrong or determining whether or not they're in the right or in the wrong on a particular matter. If you're going to judge somebody, make sure that you judge right judgment. Don't judge after just the appearance of the eye, although the appearance of the eye can oftentimes be an accurate indicator of many things, though not all things, okay? But he's saying... For with judge, what, with what judgment ye judge here in verse two, chapter seven, verse two is where we're at. Matthew chapter seven, verse two. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. So what's a good example of this? Being cautious in judgment. The one I, the example I usually run to in this is, um, if I am a bank robber, if that's my thing, if that's my hobby of choice, I'm all about robbing banks, or if that's my mode of income, I really don't have any business judging someone for knocking over a liquor store, do I? You see how clear and plain and easy to understand this is? I really don't. Why? Because thieving is thieving. So if you're going to render judgment on something, be careful that you're not guilty of the very thing that you're judging someone else of. For with what judgment you judge, you will also be judged. So if you are a habitual liar or even an occasional liar, don't get on someone else's case if they lied to you or lied to someone else because that is textbook hypocrisy. That's textbook hypocrisy. Don't abstain from judging altogether. Just make sure that your judgment is balanced and righteous. And that takes a measure of care. And it takes a good degree of wisdom too. And not, not notice it doesn't take intelligence. It takes wisdom. Those two are not related. They really are not related. There's plenty of stupid people that are surprisingly wise because you learn things in life. Amen? And there's plenty of intelligent people, as I'm sure you know. There are plenty of intelligent people that are really kind of foolish. You ever meet somebody like that? Crazy high IQ can barely tie their shoes because their brain is just working in a whole different realm of existence. So it takes wisdom and it takes some discernment and it takes maturity and it takes... It takes some care. That's why one does best not to rush to judgment on something, especially if you know good and well that you don't have all the facts. I think there was a series of commercials. I've seen them on YouTube. Um, I don't know what they were for. It might have been for insurance or something like that about not being quick to judge, and it shows you some outrageous situation that just coincidentally happens to... Uh, end up in something that looks very compromising and very bad. And, you know, and of course, if you just walk in and see it, you think, oh my goodness, this is horrible. But really, it had nothing to do with that. What's a good example of that? Well, if you walk into a room and you see somebody standing over a corpse with a bloody knife in their hand, the first conclusion you leap to is this person stabbed this person. When in fact, they might have just happened upon the dead body and picked up the murder weapon like a dummy. Be careful. Don't be quick to judge. Don't be quick to judge. So he says, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet or measure or dispense, if you will, it shall be measured to you again. In other words, it's coming back around. Now the world's big into talking about karma. But really, there's some biblical support for that. Except in the Bible, it's not really karma. It's called sowing and reaping. And there is a difference between the two, but um, a cursory examination shows that they're kind of, they're almost the same. It's what goes around comes around. 
What goes around comes around. So if we're hyperjudgmental or overly judgmental or unjustly judgmental, then it'll come back around onto us. Someone's going to judge us and probably not rightly. So be careful. Verse 3, he says, and, and this ties into the same thing. He says, and why beholdest thou the mote? What's a mote? It's a splinter. Okay, so just substitute the word mote there for splinter and you'll know what it means. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? What kind of a beam? Not a sunbeam. He's talking about a two by four. He's talking about one of these things, these trusses, a big old beam. You see the, the, the comparison there between a splinter and a beam. He says, why beholdest thou the splinter that is in thy brother's eye when you've got a huge two by four poking out of your own? This is a lesson on fault finding, which ties into judging unbalanced judgment. Why beholdest thou the splinter in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, here, let me pull that splinter out of your eye when you've got a two by four sticking out of yours? In other words, why are you regarding, why regard your brother's fault, whatever that fault might be, when you are possessed of not only the same fault, but to, you know, ten times the extent? That's the question and that's the lesson here. Thou hypocrite, Jesus says, thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam from thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. In other words, fix your own damage first, and then you will be in a place to in humility because you've been at greater fault yourself, then you'll be in a place to help your brother in a spirit of humility and brotherly kindness. You see how that all kind of slips together, kind of fits together, not being quick to judge. And if you are going to judge or even just refrain from judging at all, depending on the situation, depending on what's going on, not being quick to judge and being careful that you're not guilty of the same fault that you're judging your brother for or your sister for. Fix your own fault first and then you'll be in a, in a better place to talk to your brother or sister in Christ or anybody else for that matter about their fault. And again, with a greater degree of compassion and understanding. You know, there are people that have escaped from terrible things in this life. And some of the greatest people in the world that are capable of working with addicts and uh, and people that are strung out on, on, on various substances, some of the greatest people in the world that can work with those people are people who have escaped from those things themselves. They've been delivered from those things itself, themselves. Uh, some of the greatest marriage counselors are people that have been through one or more and have been on, uh, that, that have actually, I'm not saying it's a good thing to ever go through, but not, not by a million miles, but having gone through something ourselves, we become empathetic, don't we? We become empathetic and we're much more capable of understanding what another person is going through. So on judgment, be careful. Let your judgment be balanced, sincere and honest and absolutely without hypocrisy. Absolutely without hypocrisy. Let's move on. Verse six, different paragraph, different lesson. Give not that which is holy unto dogs. What? What's that talking about? We'll get back to it in a moment. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine. Now, two key words I want to fo focus on here in a moment. And then he gives us the reason. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. 
So let's take that whole sentence again. And this whole, this one verse is its own entire independent lesson. Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you or tear you or injure you. So what is he talking about here? Well, two words I want to focus on are dogs and swine in this lesson. Dogs. A common term among the Hebrews to refer to that which is common. And usually in, in, in the context that they often used it in, referred to Gentiles, non-Jews. Okay, now I'm not saying that that's what Jesus is talking about here, that he's talking about non-Jews. But he is warning us, he's advising us as believers, give not that which is holy unto people of a common mentality who will neither understand it nor appreciate it. Does that make sense? Have you ever been careful who you gave good news to? Not just bad news, but good news. Because you knew that they wouldn't handle it well. They would become angry because they were jealous by nature or envious by nature. So you have to be, sometimes you have to be careful who you share good news with because the, the person you thought was your friend will turn on you. And the next thing you know, you know, they're mad at you because you had some good thing happen in your life. You see that, so I'm sorry, okay, but you see that a lot of times among women when somebody gets a new boyfriend or when somebody gets engaged or when somebody gets pregnant or something like that. You have to be careful who you share good news with because not everybody always accepts it well. Likewise, bad news. You have to be careful who you share bad news with, but, but for slightly different reasons. Well, this ties into that. Give not that which is holy unto dogs. Now, does that mean that I should never share a word of the Lord, a word from the Bible or the word of the Lord with uh, an unbeliever or something like that? No, it doesn't mean that. Just be careful. Be discerning. Not everybody wants to hear it, as I'm sure most of us know. If you've ever shared something from the Word of God uh, with someone who uh, who was adamantly uh, anti-Christian or something like that, or decidedly anti-religious, he's saying, "Give not that which is holy unto dogs, neither cast ye your pearls." Pearls is often indicative of things that pearls of wisdom and so forth. Cast neither cast ye your pearls before swine. But he gives us the reason not to give holy things unto common things, not to cast pearls of wisdom before swine. What appreciation for literal pearls do pigs have? They're pigs. They care about food and mud and maybe a couple of other things. I know I've heard the arguments. Well, pigs are actually very clean animals. Sure. Okay. If you say so. That's why I always see them slopping in mud. But pigs have no interest in such things. Dogs have no interest in uh, things that are holy. That which is common has very little interest in that which is holy. Uh, swine has very little interest in pearls. So he tells us why we should exercise caution before sharing the deeper mysteries of God with certain people. Not with all people, but with certain people. Because he says here, lest they trample them under their feet. In other, in other words, regard that which is actually highly valuable as something that is worthless. And then turn again and rend you. That's even worse. That's, that's worse than someone treating something holy with, uh, with contempt, but actually becoming offended by it. And then uh, uh, centering that offense, if you will, on you because you dared to share it. You know, so I don't really go around quoting Galatians 5, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are these. 
start jacking people up for adulteries and fornications and all these other manners of sins. They don't want to hear it. And there's a time to talk about it, sure. But, you know, what do they call them? Bible thumpers. Folks that are always going around bonking people in the head with the Word of God instead of sharing something with them in love. It doesn't help. you got to be careful when you do that sort of thing. Because either A, they'll blow it off and they'll, they'll treat your divine knowledge, which is to say your knowledge of divine things. They will treat your knowledge of divine things as of little or no value, blow it off, or worse, they'll become angry and then they will attack you. Okay? Now again, that's not an absolute. There's a time, you can tell this, again, with some wisdom and some judgment and with some care, you can tell there's a time when to communicate something from the Word of God, something uh, instructive, constructive, corrective, whatever, with someone. And you can tell when, eh, if I say this, it just really isn't going to go well. You know, and there's probably lots of examples we could share, but we'll move on. I think we get the point. Verse 7, next teaching. Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you, or shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Now, this is a very simple teaching. This is a very simple teaching. And if we take it at face value, which we ought to, the vast majority of the time in scriptures, I was asked a question today um, at uh, a place out east of here. I was asked a question about taking the, the Bible at face value or literally, I think, was the term that they used. Uh, taking the value, uh, taking the Bible literally versus, I guess, not literally, symbolically, metaphorically, things to that extent. And I believe the answer that I gave them was, well, the Bible should be taken literally and at face value probably 99% of the time, 90, 99% of the time. Because whenever it's something that should not be, that it should be understood to be symbolic or metaphorical or um, analogous or something like that, then it will make that clear in the text of Scripture itself. And most of the time in those cases, it will even give you the interpretation. Now, there are some prophecies that you really have to study out and, and tie them together with similar prophecies in other books, particularly Revelation, Isaiah, and, and things like that, Book of Daniel. Not talking necessarily about those. But not everything in the Bible is symbolic. Not by a million miles. When Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you, what he actually meant was, Ask, and it shall be given you. It's pretty face value. He really did mean it. Not everything has a double meaning. And that's important to bring that up because in, in ages past, uh, within certain church institutions, and again, not throwing stones necessarily, but in ages past, in certain church institutions, there have been Schools of thought that everything in the Bible had a double meaning. It had its literal meaning and then it had a spiritual meaning attached to that. That really is not the case. And there's no reason, there's nothing biblical, there's nothing in the Bible to even suggest that that's the way that we should read the Bible. You read the Bible the way that you read any other book. You open it up and you read it. It's just that simple. And I'm not trying to come off as overly harsh necessarily, but it's easy to get 
wonky ideas about the Scripture because it is the Scripture. Really, the way to read the Bible is to just open it up and read it. Best way to read it, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, is to just read it book by book. Not necessarily Genesis to Revelation. You can skip around, but pick a book and read the whole book. Rather than you know reading a chapter over in Isaiah and then jumping over to a chapter in John. And I know I'm sort of skipping tracks off of the Word here to talk about how to read the Bible, but it's good to remember this. Rather than skipping all around the Bible all the time and then losing all of your context because you're never in any one document for the whole thing, just pick a book and then read the whole book. Read First John. And then maybe go over and read one of the prophets like Micah or something like that. But read the whole book of Micah. It's not that big. And then maybe go over and chew on one of those big ones like Isaiah. That one will take you a little while to get through. But then go over and read one of the Gospels. But read that whole Gospel. Do you see what we're saying? Pick a book and read the whole book. Would you, uh, and this isn't a perfect metaphor, but would you, if you were reading a brand new mystery series, would you go buy all eight of the books in the mystery series, start with number seven, and then two chapters into it, jump over to the third book in the series, and then you know get three quarters of the way through that, and then uh, jump over to the fourth one, then over to the eighth one, and not finish any of them, but just keep skipping? That wouldn't make any sense to you, would it? It'd be a mess. That's how a lot of people study their Bibles or read their Bibles, and that's one reason why they get odd ideas. So, face value. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Why? Verse 8. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven good good gifts give good gifts to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So here, verses 7 through 12 is a teach, is a teaching on faith in action. It really is. How many of us dare to actually ask God outright when we want something or need something? How many of us dare to knock or seek? Or do we have that, um, that, that default pessimistic mentality of, oh, well, I'm not even going to try because it's not going to work anyway. There's lots of folks that are like that. And it's, it's a bad way for their minds to be entrenched in. But Jesus really shines a light on, again, just taking God at His word and telling us, hey, knock, ask, seek, ask, and it shall be given unto you. It shall be given you. Have you ever heard someone say that to someone else? You have not because you ask not. They're quoting James, the book of James when they do that. But you have not because you ask not. Well, why not ask? Well, I don't think God would give it to me. Well, why wouldn't you think that God would give it to you? Now, it might not fall out of the sky like we've joked about over the last few weeks. You know, God, I want a brand new uh, BMW 735i, you know, and then Amazon helicopters it over to your house, <laughs> drops it down on a parachute. Not saying that it'll happen that way. But when you ask God, especially being his son or his daughter, 
And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be the best kind of father and mother you can be if you have children, okay? Because you are the very first example to your offspring of how they will perceive God. So if you are a horrible father and you're the drunken abuser that punches your wife and kicks your kids around and chokes your dog, your children, if they survive childhood, they're going to have a similar impression of God because you as their natural father were a monster. But if you're a good father and you love your child, and I'm not saying that you're perfect, you never make a bad call, you never do something that you shouldn't do as a father or a mother, I'm not saying that. But if you're a good father, a good mother, then those impressions will imprint themselves on your child's brain, your son's brain, your daughter's brain. And as they grow older and, and gain a fuller concept of God in their minds, they're going to associate him with the way you treated them. And it's one, of, it's one of the most powerful spiritual teacher, uh, practical spiritual teachers that a person can have in their life is, is parenthood. Really, I'm not saying that it's the best or that it's the only one. I'm just saying that it is one of the most powerful. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. Because this relates to uh, behavior of parents and children. You know, when if you had a father or mother you could approach and ask them for something, then you're that much likely to trust God with the same thing, going to God to ask Him. You're much more likely to, to believe that He'll answer your prayer. Likewise, seeking and finding, knocking and being opened unto us. This, this relates so much to a parent-child relationship. For everyone that asketh receives it. Receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh, to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man of you, and this is where he really brings it home, what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? And that goes right back to what we were just talking about. Now, if you, maybe you had a horrible dad. That's exactly what he would do. You'd ask him for a piece of bread or for a fish, and he'd give you a rock or a snake. That's a terrible father. You know, unless it was a rubber snake and he was a practical joker. You know what I'm talking about. But generally, good parents who love their children if they can, and if there's no reason not to, they'll give what their child asks them to, won't they? If you've got children, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, I never gave my kid anything because I didn't want him to get spoiled. Oh, come on. Come on. I don't know which is worse. Always giving a kid exactly what they want all the time, regardless of the consequences, or never giving them anything that they want no matter what. I think they're, they're both equally destructive in, in two different ways. You know, judgment, discernment. You know when something's good for your child or not. And you also know how to explain it to a child so that they can understand or at least, ha at least have a go at it. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things unto them that ask Him? Now there's a deeper teaching in here. Or not a deeper teaching, but there's a, there's... There's a word that leaps out of this paragraph every time I read it. And it, it bears taking a moment to deal with. And he, he says this word here, evil, in verse 11. Remember who Jesus is teaching. He's teaching unsaved people. It's not because they're Jews that they were evil. It's because they were unsaved people that they were evil. But the whole world was unsaved at that time. If you'll remember, we've talked about that a couple of times. Because Jesus had not yet died. 
And therefore, the ultimate sacrifice for sin had not yet been, or the ultimate price had not yet been paid. It doesn't mean that people could not be redeemed. It just mean, it means that they could not be born again in the New Testament sense that every one of us here that believe upon Jesus have been able to enjoy. Do we understand that? Because we can jump back into a quick lesson on dispensations if we need to. Jesus hadn't died and so nobody was born again. Not yet. Now they could still be counted as righteous the same way that Abraham was if they depended on God after the same fashion that Abraham did. So faith is still was still demonstrable in those days. It's just that Jesus had not yet died. So that being said, he says, if ye then being evil. Now, let's take that word. And it's, man, it sounds like a sharp slap in the face. He called all of these people gathered at the Sermon on the Mount evil. Well, yes. But he wasn't calling them all Hitler. He wasn't, he wasn't accusing them of being mass murdering, baby eating, social menaces and monsters. Not by a million miles, okay? But if he's calling them all that, we need to understand why. Because that's a very charged word, isn't it? Evil. Evil. Think back to your Saturday morning cartoons and every villain ever, you know? Evil. Well, what do we think of when we think of someone who's evil? What's the first thing that we think of? Well, we always think of the worst of the worst of humanity, right? We think of the Hitlers and the Stalins. We think of, make, make them sound like the Kardashians, like a family or something. It's the Hitlers. It's the Hitler family. Yay. No. <laughs> no, no, no. But we think of people of that caliber, you know? The people like Adolf Hitler, people like Joseph Stalin, people who, who are guilty of mass murder and slaughter. We think of uh, certain types of criminals today that are very popular and safe to hate, like anybody who's a murderer, anybody who's a rapist, anybody who messes with a kid, any kind of white, middle-aged, corporate, executive, embezzler-type person. Everybody hates those because society and the media has taught us to hate anybody that actually has money. And that ties into a whole different teaching. You know, anybody along those lines, murderers, rapists, people that mess with children, child molesters, uh, people who embezzle money and are rich, you know, people don't mind embezzlers if they're poor, but they absolutely can't stand an embezzler if they're rich. That ties into jealousy and some other things that are at the root cause of that. But things like this that are popular to hate. People who beat their wives, they're popular to hate. I'm not saying that, you know, they're good people. But that's who we typically assign that rank of evil to. The absolute worst. And really, what a, you could even generalize it more than that. We like to think of any, we think, we think evil is anyone who's worse than me. Ooh, that hits home, doesn't it? Anybody who's a worse person than I am, they're evil. Oh, but I'm not evil. Well, now, if you're saved... If you're born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, then you're right. You're not. You have come out of that and you have been brought into a state of righteousness by the power of Almighty God, not by our own power. Okay? But really, evil isn't just the Hitlers and the Stalins and the wife beaters and the child molesters and such like. Oh, yes, they're evil. They're evil to the core. Okay? Granted. But so is the casual liar. So is the man that lusts after anyone who is not his wife. So is the person who swipes $5 out of the, uh, out of the cash register because they're broke and they just need some money to put in their gas tank. 
so is the person who blows his stack and gives vent to wrath and curses up a blue streak. And, and so is the idle gossiper. They're all evil. Doesn't mean that they're all evil to the same extent or as far as what they will do. But you have to understand something about this. And I know I've kind of slowed it down, but I really want to make sure this understanding sinks deep down into our minds, okay? Evil isn't an action. It's a condition. Okay? The actions that are evil by nature, those are sins. Do you see the relation between them? Evil is the soil out of which grows the tree that produces the fruit of evil, which is sin. You see how that works? Does that make sense? An evil person will commit sins. An evil person will commit evil actions. Actions that are evil by nature or of an evil condition. And so what has to happen? Well, in the person's life, what has to happen is the soil has to be changed. That only happens through the power of Jesus Christ. That only happens by the blood of Jesus. So what Jesus was saying here to the people gathered at his Sermon on the Mount was, if ye then being evil, in other words, if ye then being caught up in a state of overriding self-interest. That's really what evil is. Evil is that state of being in which a person says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do without any respect or regard to laws, commandments, or damages to others or even to the self. It is that, it is that innate condition that we are all born into and it colors everything in a person's life and in their mind and their thinking and their heart. It touches all of it. It touches all of it. Do you, do you see, but do you get a glimpse of how expansive the problem of evil is and why it took something so drastic as the death of the Son of God to change that condition in the human heart. Because evil touches everything. It even touches good works. And it makes people want to do good works so that they can be seen by others. Remember, we talked about some of that earlier in our, in our teachings about not doing thine alms to be seen of men and not making long, loud, elaborate prayers to try to impress other people. It's all about the motive. Okay, so Jesus saying, if ye then being evil, meaning if ye then being in this unregenerated, unsaved state of overriding self-interest, do we get it? It's not just the Hitlers of the world. It's not just the criminals of our society. It's anyone walking the earth that has not yet been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's not a cruel thing to say. And it's not an indictment either. It's just an honest, biblical diagnosis of the human condition. We were born evil, every single one of us. And that's why we needed a Savior. And having received the Savior, we have now ceased to be evil. Because it takes that to change evil into good. It really does. It takes a fundamental change way down deep in the heart. And that happens the moment that you sincerely, genuinely asked him into your life to forgive you of all your sins. Amen? Praise God for the Son of God. Praise God for Calvary. Praise God for the blood of Jesus Christ. This is actually a good place to stop right here. Where were we at?
Well, let's let's I, I cut it off halfway through the sentence. So let me get through to chapter or to verse twelve, and then we'll stop for the night. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, because it, many unsafe parents dearly love their children. Okay, we we know that. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven, who is not evil, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Okay, so if you had a horrible Father, well, your Father in heaven is not horrible. Okay, and if you had a wonderful Father growing up, well, your Father in heaven is even more wonderful and awesome than that. And so, knowing that and understanding that as children of God, bring your case to Jesus. Whatever that case may be, your petition, your desire, your pain, your angst, your anguish, and never with this, we should never have the attitude of this problem is too small for God. Never think that God's so busy that He can't, that He can't attend unto your prayer or to your cry. Likewise, never think that your problem's too big because God's in the business of solving all manner of problems. So that's the takeaway lesson from this paragraph, verses 7 through 12. How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You could make that its own teaching. That's where we extract the golden rule from. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. We'll pick it up next week. Be at the will of the Lord. Verse 13. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.